Welcome to the Disciples Church Podcast. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and I'm so glad that you took the time to join us today. Brothers and sisters, he is risen. This is the day when we celebrate together that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. When we think about Easter, we often think as easily about our family traditions as we do about the real meaning of it. And don't get me wrong, traditions are are great. My boys dyed Easter eggs this week. Uh, we have a ham in the refrigerator ready um, to be baked for Easter lunch. Uh, and Starburst, once again this year, released their Easter jelly beans. So at the Mosier household, uh, we have a lot to be thankful for. But at a time when so many traditions have been interrupted, we are given a fresh reminder of why we celebrate Easter. We celebrate because we believe that Jesus Christ is God. We believe that what we remembered on Good Friday actually happened, that he was killed on a cross and that he was placed in the grave. And we also unequivocally believe that the very same Jesus, the God-man, literally, physically rose from the dead three days later on Sunday. So even though we can't be together for this Easter celebration, I'm reminded of something that I heard my father say on countless occasions growing up, which is that for the Christian, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. And certainly when we can gather again, this truth will be at the forefront of our minds. But the question that every person must consider on a day like this is what will you do with Jesus? The claims of his resurrection are ones that demand a response. And so we'll begin today by looking at Psalm 118, kind of looking at that as our jumping off point. We've been in the Psalms now for the past couple of weeks, and this Psalm in particular is relevant as we think about Resurrection Sunday. We're not told who the author is, but it's written as a Psalm of praise and thanksgiving. And so I want to read from Psalm 118, beginning in verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118 is an interesting passage. It has special significance within Judaism because it's a psalm which was to be sung at the end of Passover. And to put that in perspective, what that means is that this psalm very likely would have been words that Jesus himself would have sung in the final hours before his judgment and crucifixion. This psalm was written by the psalmist about his own personal experience. And so while it wasn't necessarily written as prophetic, looking through the lens of what we know about the New Testament, we see all kinds of significant language in this text. And so I want to look at a few of those relevant references. First, in verse 17, on a day like Resurrection Sunday, something that leaps out at us is this declaration, I shall not die, but I shall live. Now, to be clear, 
The psalmist, of course, eventually did die. This isn't some arrogant claim of immortality, but what the psalmist is saying is that he has come to rest in the realization that he is securely in God's hand. The psalmist is declaring that he is relying on the sovereign goodness of God, and that reliance has led him to confidence and worship. And then we see what is really a gospel progression in the words of the psalmist and something we've been looking at really for the last couple of weeks, this move from despair to hope to confidence to praise. Notice what he says in verse 18. He says, I've experienced difficulty and even painful things, but you have protected me from death. In other words, the psalmist is saying, much like Job did, I know the God who holds my breath in his hands. I know in whose hands my eternity rests. And then in verses 19 through 20, he says, you've invited me into your presence by making me righteous in your sight. You see the psalmist here trusting in the grace of God to declare him holy and to find him acceptable in God's sight. And then in verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. His confidence is in the fact that God had provided salvation for him, that God had shown himself faithful and present in his life. And so the question is for us, from where does all of this stem? From where does he receive deliverance and righteousness and salvation? And the answer that the psalmist gives should sound familiar to us. All of this was made possible because, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, this verse is quoted five different times in the New Testament. It's one of the most quoted verses that we find in the Bible. And every single time it's quoted, it is directly referencing Jesus See, the truth is we cannot read Psalm 118 without being immediately reminded of the salvation that came through the cornerstone, through Jesus himself. And it's with that in mind that I want to draw your attention to Acts chapter 4. Now, to set this scene, this whole scenario happens after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Peter and John were walking through this place called the Beautiful Gate. It was known to be a place where beggars would spend time, where these people who had ailments, perhaps from birth or from an injury or from an illness, would go in order to beg and earn money to feed themselves and to feed their families. And so as Peter and John are walking through this place called the Beautiful Gate, they encounter a man who was unable to walk. The man calls out to them and asks them for money, and Peter's response in Acts chapter 3 is, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And we're told that the man stood up in that moment that he not only began to walk, but in fact he began to leap. And everyone who knew this beggar was amazed at how he'd been healed. And all of this excitement drew the attention of the religious establishment. They wanted to know who had given Peter and John the authority and the power to heal this lame man. And so Acts chapter 4 records this exchange between Peter and the religious council. Beginning in verse 1. And as they, that's Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them 
and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about five thousand. On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Think about this. The religious leaders had murdered Jesus in an attempt to shut down his following. But rather than stall people's interest in Jesus, their interest had been piqued to a whole new level because now they had heard the stories of his resurrection. And Peter is now preaching to massive crowds of people. We're told in verse 4 that 5,000 men came to believe in Jesus on this occasion. That's 5,000 men, not including women and not including children. So now Peter is standing before these religious leaders giving an account for his teaching. And notice the tact that Peter takes here. He doesn't apologize and he doesn't soft-pedal the story. He says to the ruling elders, Do you want to know how and why we healed this man? We did it by the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. Now remember, these are the same people that had just killed his closest friend, Jesus. These are the very same people who had just had Peter and John arrested and put into prison. See, if the resurrection was just a hoax, if it was a political maneuver or a fairy tale, Peter would have had no reason to stand here and deliver this message. I mean, remember who Peter is. This is hot-headed, compulsive, braggadocious Peter. This is the man who promised Jesus that he would remain faithful even unto death. But we're told in Luke 22 that as Peter watched Jesus be arrested and beaten, he grew scared. And as Peter watched Jesus from afar, a few people noticed him and said, Hey, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? I could have sworn I'd seen you before. And Peter, upon hearing this accusation, said, No, I don't know who you're talking about. And again, someone else approached Peter and said, Hey, I recognize you. You're one of those disciples of Jesus Christ, aren't you? And again, Peter said, I don't even know who this Jesus is. And finally, a servant girl approached Peter and said, I recognize your accent. You're from Galilee, aren't you? You're one of his disciples. And Peter, fearing what might have happened to him, cursed and denied Christ a third time. So the question that should come to mind for us is, what happened? What happened between the time when Peter was willing to sell out Jesus for the sake of his reputation before people he didn't even know 
to the time when he boldly preached salvation through Jesus Christ alone to a crowd of over 5,000 people. What happened between the time when Peter couldn't stand up to the scrutiny of a servant girl to the time where he defied face-to-face the religious leaders who had the power to arrange his death? What could account for such a change in character? And the answer is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, Peter had begun to understand what a life-changing prospect it is that his worth was not defined by what others thought of him. That his life did not ultimately belong in the hands of the religious establishment. He had begun to understand that his worth was defined by Jesus' sacrificial love for him, and that his life rested securely in Jesus' resurrected hands. This same Jesus, whom he had seen raised from death to life. And notice how the religious leaders responded when Peter was done speaking. It says, they were astonished. And they recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. See, Peter experienced what the author of Psalm 118 wrote. He experienced rescue and salvation. He had been given a righteousness that was not his own. In other words, Jesus had become the cornerstone of Peter's life. So what is a cornerstone? A cornerstone is a, is a construction reference. In, in ancient times, it was the most important stone that somebody would purchase as they began to build a structure. It was the first one that was laid. The borders of the structure were going to go out from that cornerstone, so the edges had to be exactly square, had to be measured exactly right. All of the other stones that were going to comprise the structure were tied into it in some way or another. And because of all of those important details, the cornerstone was the most valuable. It was the largest stone. It had to have perfect dimensions. It had to be completely solid so that the whole structure didn't start to crumble. See, a cornerstone is whatever you have built your life around. It's wherever you've set your hope. Do you know how you can identify the cornerstone of your life? You know what your cornerstone is by where you turn when life goes wrong. And the cornerstone for many of us may be defined by all kinds of different aspects of our life. For some, it might be family, making sure that our family is well provided for and taken care of, that we have good moral kids who do the right thing and gain the right education and live in the right places. For others, it might be a job. It might be the dream job that you've hoped for, the job that you so desperately wanted, the job that you're just so good at. For others, it might be your health, and you focus on eating right, and you focus on exercising, and you focus on doing all the right things to maintain your body. And understand this, family is a good and beautiful gift from God, but it makes a terrible cornerstone. Because family can fail you. Your family can have horrible experiences. Your children may not make the decisions that you would want them to make. Your marriage may not be the picture of perfection that you were hoping it would be. Your job and work is a good thing. It's a good gift from God. But understand, as many may have even experienced in this most recent economic downturn, your job is not always as dependable as you once presumed that it was. Your job can be taken from you in an instant. And the same is true of our health. 
Health is something that can be taken away from us in a moment of time. See, none of those things can be the cornerstone that we so desperately need in our life. And when your cornerstone begins to crumble, everything else begins to crumble as well. But in Jesus, the Bible is introducing us to a cornerstone that cannot be shaken and that will never crumble. And Jesus himself invites us to see him this way. Here's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 47. Jesus said, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. See, often we are so focused on getting out of the storms of life, and we're so focused on avoiding difficulty and pain, that we neglect to realize that the storms are not our biggest problem. Our foundation is. And so when Peter addressed the religious leaders, he was inviting the hearer to look to Jesus as the cornerstone that would always be solid and true, one that wouldn't crumble or fall, and one that was inherently invaluable. He's not inviting you to add some moral Christian principle to your life, but what Peter is suggesting is that your whole foundation needs to be leveled and rebuilt on Jesus. This is what Peter had in mind when he wrote in the second chapter of his first letter, Come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And Peter understood better than anyone the truth of that claim. Here he was, the man who had denied Jesus, the man who felt the guilt and the shame of abandoning Christ in his moment of deepest need. But in Jesus' death on the cross for Peter, he had found forgiveness and salvation. And in Jesus' resurrection, Peter had found new life and new hope. And because of that, Peter could confidently say with the psalmist, I shall not die, but I shall live. And here's where we find the explicit hope of the gospel in Acts 4. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See, this is the unique and controversial claim of the Christian faith, that in Jesus alone lies true salvation. And what Peter rightly points out is that Jesus' resurrection is the linchpin that holds Christianity together. See, if the resurrection is true, then all of the Bible must be true and must be believed. But if the resurrection is false, then all of the Bible is to be dismissed. And not only did Peter and John know that the resurrection was the linchpin, but the religious leaders knew it too. It's the reason why they were angry, according to verse 2, because Peter and John were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. 
See, friend, wherever you are in your life today, you must answer the question, what is your cornerstone? Jesus is inviting you to come to him, not just as a companion or friend, but as your cornerstone, the unshakable foundation. He's inviting you to see him, not only as the one who paid the penalty for your sin and made you righteous, but as the one who brings life to what was dead. And that's why the example of Peter in this text is so important. Without the resurrection, there is no reason to believe that Peter, driven as he was by the fear of men, would have ever changed. But having believed in the resurrection, he was no longer living for just the here and now, but for what lied ahead. So what power did the resurrection have that changed him so fundamentally? See, Jesus' cross rightly gets much attention in our faith. It was through Jesus' death that God physically demonstrated his love toward us. And more than that, it's through Jesus' shed blood that we received pardon and forgiveness. It's what cleared the insurmountable debt that we owed, and it's what removed the looming judgment from above our heads. But it's the resurrection that provided new life for God's people. It took us from merely being dead souls no longer owing a debt to being whole new creations with spiritual vitality and a new eternal future in front of us. See, through death and resurrection, we were released from the penalty of sin. We are being delivered from the power of sin. And someday we will be free from the very presence of sin. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And here's ultimately what Paul is saying. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then we can be confident that the same resurrection awaits those who believe in him. See, resurrection is not just the undoing of death. It is the very death of death. Resurrection is the promise that for those who know Christ, there is a future resurrection and eternal life. And in the resurrection, death no longer had the last word. So C.S. Lewis said it this way, The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. So friend, if you haven't recognized Jesus as the giver of life and the cornerstone, he invites you to himself today. He invites you to trust in him for salvation and to find in him confident rest. So would you look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the cornerstone that never shifts or fails? Would you find new hope in the pioneer of life who defeated death and hell once and for all? Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your sovereign love you were willing to send your Son to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserved, and to be raised again to give us his life, abundant and free. For those who already know you, would this serve as a precious reminder of the hope that lies within us? Would it carry us through dark times and be our song in the night? Would it be a source of joy and comfort? And for those who don't know you, would you impress upon them their desperate need for the salvation that only you can bring, for the life that only you can give, and for the sure foundation that only you can provide? God, we ask that you would encourage your people in our time apart and cause us to look forward to the time where we can worship our resurrected Savior together once again. We pray all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you so much for listening. And if you have any questions or would like to talk further about the things we discussed today, feel free to email us at info at discipleschurchwi.org. We'd love the opportunity to talk to you further. Praying you have a blessed Easter and a restful week in Christ our cornerstone. God bless.